Well, good morning. It's never good when I show up with a file folder up here. <laughs> Get out all my notes here. I want to begin by just expressing my thanks to you, the church family. Um, many of you reached out with expressions of love and comfort to our family. You've dropped off meals without warning. You have sent cards. You've made phone calls. And I just want you to know how much that has meant to us as a family. Um, I want to publicly thank my fellow elders who have been bearing an additional load because I have become somebody who's needed pastored <laughs> um, through all of this. Um, and they're continuing to help shoulder the load even as we're trying to help my sister-in-law and her family. Um, I had no idea when we had talked many years ago about the plurality of elders, just what a benefit that would actually be even for me personally. But um, I have felt the love and the shepherding of my fellow elders through all of this, and it's been all the difference for me, and I just want to publicly thank them as well. And so this morning, um, my intention was to go back to our study in Luke, but that's going to wait one more week. I want you to turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. That's not going to be our text this morning, but it's going to where we're going to launch from, Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33. Those of you who know me well, you, you know that I have a keen interest in politics, but I am not at all what anybody would be, somebody who would be known as a political activist. It's just not who I am. And so this morning, I want to preface this message by saying this is not a political message. This is not political activism. This is a shepherd warning his sheep this morning. It's also a shepherd standing with the full backing of the, my fellow elders this morning and standing with a group of pastors this morning who are doing something very courageous. And we're going to get to that in just a second as to what's happening. But in Ezekiel chapter 33, I'd like to just take your attention to verse 1. Ezekiel is God's prophet, and this word is given to him. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head." He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them a warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, 
That person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. What's clear from this text is, is that God wanted his people to be warned. Do you see that? He, he raised up a watchman for his people to be warned, to warn of danger, to warn of, of threats that are coming. There is the need for a watchman. We see in verse 6 of this text that a negligent watchman is held into account. We see in verses 7 through 9 that a watchman is appointed to warn. Now, this morning, my role as an elder in this church is not that of a prophet. I understand that. I'm not a prophet. I'm not here this morning getting some special revelation from God and giving it to you. What I'm doing is simply opening up the Word of God to you. It's not our role to be prophets, but there is a duty, I do believe, to protect and to warn this flock. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, as Paul talks to the Ephesian elders, he says this in verse 28 to them. He's giving them a charge to these elders, these pastors of the Ephesian church. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he has obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul saw two threats to the local church, and they're the same two threats that we face today. The threat of misteaching false doctrine coming up from our midst, which is why we have a doctrinal statement and why we, we hold to that very seriously and dearly, but there's also the threat of, of that from the outside coming in. This morning, I want to talk about a threat coming from the outside in, a threat to the gospel, a threat to the gospel, and as a gospel-believing, gospel-preaching church, make no mistake, church, it is a threat to us. It is a threat to us. It's vitally important to address this issue because it deals with an attack on the very authority and the veracity of Scripture. Whether or not the Bible really is true or not is under attack right now. To be honest with you, many men have chosen not to preach about it, and for that reason, even whole denominations in our country have fallen by the way. I came across this quote from Martin Luther, and I want to just share it with you, because it's the spirit with which I want to address this this morning. Because quite honestly, there's a temptation in my own heart right now to not deal with it. Luther said this, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely the little point with which the world and the devil at their moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. You understand what he's saying there? If I stand before you and tell you I stand on the word of God, if any of us who preach in this pulpit and tell you we stand upon the word of God, but we won't deal with the issue that the world is attacking right now, then we're frauds. He says, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all other battlefields is merely flight and disgrace if he flinches at that one point. I'm not some super brave person here this morning, but I will say this, by God's grace, I don't want to flinch on this point. In case you're wondering, we as elders discussed this in our meeting Wednesday night or Monday night when we met. 
And I, I presented to them what I wanted to do this morning and the reasons why I wanted to do this, and they unanimously said, do it. And so we are in full agreement on this. You say, so what is going on, Pastor Dan? What's got you so worked up? Well, north of our border in Canada, right during the Christmas holiday, right, right when things were just really, there was a lot of eyes in a lot of different places, right north of our border, the Canadian government unanimously passed a bill that became law January 8th in Canada. And you say, we don't live in Canada. Well, I'm going to make my point here. This bill is known as C4, and it is now law in Canada. It makes it a criminal act to use what they call as conversion therapies to retrain same-sex attracted people or to retrain people who embrace that their gender that they were born with really truly isn't their gender. Now that's a lot of legalese to say this. What the Canadian government has sanctioned now is this, that if you call homosexuality sin, it is a criminal act and pastors are going to go to jail for it. You say, PD, why are you preaching on it today? Because today in Canada right now, there are hundreds of pastors standing in their pulpit. They have announced to their congregation what they're preaching about, and they are standing in their pulpits, and they are defying their government today, and I think that's something to be supported. And I think it's something that you and I need to be made aware of and what's happening the bill is so broad in Canada that it effectively bans and makes illegal the preaching and teaching of God's Word on what God has to say about human sexuality, marriage, and homosexuality. It makes it illegal for a parent to get their child help if they're dealing with the sin of homosexuality. It makes it a crime. It specifically states in the bill that parents will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. It criminalizes the biblical view that people are created indelibly as male or female. Let me say that again. Our Bible teaches that God created them male and female, and it criminalizes that teaching. It makes it a crime for parents to get help, as I said before. It makes it a crime for pastors to offer biblical counsel to those who are trapped in the sin of homosexuality. I want you to hear what the preamble of this bill says. This is, this is a quote from the bill. The preamble of the bill states the belief that heterosexuality, cisgender, gender identity. You know what cisgender, gender identity is? It's basically you were created male or you were created female in that belief. So that cisgender, gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions is a myth. It's a myth. You say, well, that's Canada, Pastor Dan. I would challenge you to do your research. One of our major political parties, one of the two, had similar language in their platform this past election cycle. The wording was almost verbatim what the Canadian law is. Say, well, it didn't happen, Pastor Dan. It's not happening in our legislature. It's already passed in 12 states in our country. States like California, New York, New Jersey, Oregon, Massachusetts, Nevada, they already have these laws on their books. They're just choosing not to enforce them yet. 
These laws are already a part of, of their system. A look around our own country says this, that even in our churches, in our own country, the sin of homosexuality and what the Bible has to say about it is being redefined. Pastor Andy was sharing with me how even when he asked questions of our own youth group within the past year, some of the responses that he got and, 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 and comments about what truly is homosexuality and what the Bible has to say about it. You realize that homosexuality and as our Bible refers to homosexuality is being redefined to our kids as that was only something that had to do with cult worship. It only had to do with, with cases of rape, but that homosexual love is real love. That's what's being told to our kids. My daughter attends a college where the, in every class, at the beginning of every semester, you have to put down on a sheet your preferred pronoun. And we chuckle at that, but that is what our kids are being indoctrinated with, so that they see it as normal. In 2014, our church leaders added a lengthy section to our constitution. When was the last time you read the church constitution? Like, that's something that, that's somewhere lost on one of my shelves, or it's still buried in my trunk from the last time I picked it up and I threw it in there. We passed a lengthy section to our Constitution called A Policy on Marriage and Human Sexuality. I remember on the day when we took that vote, I half-joked to those who were assembled in, the, in a meeting, which, by the way, was pretty poorly attended. You would think it would be pretty heavily attended on something that important, would you not? But on the day when we voted on that, it was a poorly attended meeting, and I remember half-joking to our people, at least you as a church will know why your pastor went to jail. Folks, that's the reality now. That's the reality. Might I suggest to you it might be good if you're a member of this church to get a copy of the Constitution out and reread Article 13 of that Constitution because that's something that you said you agreed to. So with that in mind, with the stage set, I would like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You'll notice that Paul here, as he's writing here, is making a case about who will and who will not be a part of the kingdom of God. And if you look at that list, and if you honestly look at that list in verses 9 and 10, which is not intended to be an exhaustive list, okay? Paul is not trying to list every sin here. What he is doing, though, is naming some sins, Okay, and, and what he's doing here is naming kinds of sins that tend to characterize a person's life. 
And as he names these sins, I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we are guilty of at least some of those sins. Are we not, church? None of us are going to inherit the kingdom of God according to this list. He's not just talking about being physically immoral. He's talking about sins of the mind, being an idolater. All of us worship at false gods from time to time. He's talking there about those who have adulterated, not just the physical act of adultery, but the mental act of adultery as well. And then he says men who practice homosexuality. That word, more than just about any word, that Greek word that's translated in our Bibles, homosexuality, is one of the words that is getting more and more parsed by so-called egg-headed theological scholars in liberal seminaries today. I guess I've kind of just given my bias, haven't I? And the word has been redefined. The word in the Greek generally means this. Here's what the word in the Greek means. It means to have sex with the same sex like you would have with the opposite sex. Like, PD, you're being kind of graphic here. Yes, I am. It means that you have sex with the same sex, the physical act of sexual relations like you would with somebody of the opposite sex. That's exactly what that word means. It means for a man who lies with a woman to lie with a man in the same way. There's no qualifier in this verse. There's no qualifier in the original language that says that it, that it had to do with, with temple occult practices, which is what's being taught today. This was specifically for that. Or that it has to do with cases of rape. This is simply a man choosing to have sex with a man or a woman choosing to have sex with a woman is what Paul is referring to here. Let's understand something here. God looks at that the same way he looks at those who would practice idolatry. He looks at that the same way as those who would swindle other people. He looks at that the same way that someone would greedily keep all of the world's possessions to themselves and not share it with somebody else. It's in the same list here. It's in the same list. And let's understand the gender morphing that's going on in our world today and, and, and the idea of homosexuality and transsexuality and all those other little letters that are in their little anacronym, they go directly against the created order and God's design for sexuality. God has a clear plan and God has a clear design and we can find it in the very beginning of His Word. Let me remind you, take your Bible with me and go back to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, on the, on the sixth day of creation, it says that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, okay? Let, making man in our image and, and in our likeness. This is unlike any other creation that God has done. The fish, the, the, the animals, the stars, they're not made in God's image. He's going to make something in his image now that reflects him, that, 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 that if you will, almost is like a shadow of himself here on this earth. 
He says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Question for you, church. Are both men and women created in the image of God? Absolutely. And is the Bible clear here as to how he made them? How many different genders are there, church? Two, who assigned the gender at creation of life? Are you clear on that? Because the rest of the world is not. The rest of the world is not clear on that. The same God who created Adam and designated him as a man created me on December 13, 1966 and designated that I would be a male. But it doesn't just stop there, because as the creative account moves forward and we get to chapter 2, and, and chapter 2 is kind of a, if you will, it's kind of a, a blow-up of the, of the sixth day of creation, we, we find out some more details. And in, in verse 18, he's created man, and man, man now is there doing, he's beginning to do his work. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whenever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Do you get the picture here? On, on, on day six of creation, he's created man. Here's man. And God says, I have made you in my image. I have given you this brilliant intellect. I've given you this amazing mind. And I want you to use it now. I want you to go to work for me. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm bringing all the animals that I've created. He brings a pair of baboons. And Adam looks at that and he says, baboon. He brings a giraffe. He says, giraffe. And it goes on and on. Wombats and porcupines and possums. Why God made possums, we don't know. But anyway, he brings all these animals and Adam sees these pairs of animals. And what does Adam realize? Something's missing here. You get the picture, Adam's looking around. Two lions, two elephants. Two crocodiles. Cool. One man. Something's missing here. In verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he, while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is the last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, we have the created act here of how God creates a woman for man and vice versa. And now look at verse 24. Therefore, because of what God's done here, because God's created man and woman, okay? Notice they're distinctly different. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's understand something here. The marriage relationship was established at creation as man and woman. It was a monogamous, married, heterosexual sex, which is God's plan. Let me say that again. Monogamous, married, heterosexual sex is God's plan. 
And when you're doing it God's way, I'm going to go on record and say this, it is awesome. But when you don't do it God's way, you have perverted God's created order. And to be honest, to say otherwise is to attack the authority and the truth of God's Word. And that is what is happening in our world today. I want you to understand something here. I don't think COVID is going to bring down the church. I think this issue is what is going to be used against the church in our country. This issue right here. The stage is being set. Throughout all of history, men have had to stand for certain issues. In Spurgeon's day, it was the downgrade controversy. I think in our day, it's going to be this issue of homosexuality and where we stand on it. History shows that the most ungodly societies and cultures are full of sexual perversion. Have you done any study of Roman and Roman society? They were absolute perverts, but before we point the finger, our government is full of perverts too. I said that. Just, just turn on the sewer that is the news for a couple minutes. Names like Jeffrey Epstein and people like that who are connected to people in our government. Our government is full of perverts too, which tells you how far our society has gone. It's estimated that 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexuals. The leading philosophers that people were listening to in Paul's day were Socrates and Plato. Guess what they both were? Homosexuals. It's no wonder that God shines a light on homosexuality when Paul writes to the Romans. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. And by the way, let me ask you a question. Have you once heard me yet say today that I hate homosexuals? You're not going to hear that. Have you heard me say that God hates homosexuals? Okay. Make sure that we're clear on this. Homosexuality is not a misunderstood thing as our world is teaching our kids. It's not something that you were born with, as our world is teaching. It's not harmless whenever we see ads on our TV that say, love is love, and it shows two men holding hands and two women holding hands, and then people who are not sure what they are holding hands. Romans 1 and verse 18 starts a section here where Paul is making a case for why God's wrath is going to have to be poured out. You see it there? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. How many in this room have been unrighteous? Guess what? God's wrath is ready to be poured out on us, according to this verse, right? For that, he goes on to say, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Do you understand what God is saying there? All you have to do is just look around and understand that there is a God who is far above us, who does amazing things. His power and his nature are on display. 
The same God that gives us beautiful fall nights that we can sit out by a fire is about to give us a wonderful snowfall this afternoon. Could you have come up with snow? I couldn't have come up with snow. I wouldn't come up with snow. <laughs> but God did. And notice what happens. He says they're without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, because they were, or, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's a description of every person who has ever walked on the face of this earth. They chose not to acknowledge God, and they became futile in their thinking, empty in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. All of us are dealing with darkened hearts because of the fall and because of our sinful nature. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. You notice this gets worse and worse as you read. You ever notice when you read Romans 1, it, it doesn't go from like the very worst to getting better. It goes from worse to getting even more worse. If you're bad with English, it goes from worse to worser. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And, and, and really what Paul's writing here and what he's saying is, we're so stupid that rather than worshiping the God who could make the sun, we worship the sun. Or worshiping the God who makes a beautiful horse, we bow down in front of a horse and we worship it. And here's what God's done. Therefore God gave them up in their lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Do you see it there? What God, God gave them up. Do you understand that what's happening here in the world that we live in today is God giving the world over to what the world wants? And it's a dangerous thing when he does that. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. It's interesting that he would mention women first here. I was doing some thinking on this and did some reading on this. And, and as God is abandoning man, one of, the, one of the proofs of a society that's gone way beyond what God intended is, is that women are mentioned first here. Charles Hodge, the great theologian, wrote this. Paul first mentions the degradation of females among the heathen because they are always the last to be affected in the decay of morals, and their corruption is therefore proof that all virtue is lost. Let's be honest, women. You are the more moral ones than men are. And, what, and what's being said here is this. When, when women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, then you know that you have truly jumped the shark. Verse 27, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Do you see how many times it says there God gave them up? God gave them up. God gave them up. Understand that homosexuality, yes, it is a sin, but it is also the judgment of God when God gives you over. And now we have governments in our world celebrating this horror 
and making it a part of their legal system to protect, to protect those who God has given over to their own lusts. It continues on. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. That sounds like you and me, doesn't it? They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. That sounds like us, doesn't it? Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them, and that is what is happening at a national government level in Canada and is soon to come to our own country. It's not only that it's happening, but it's being approved by men. Our kids are being assaulted with this. And I do mean assaulted. Our kids are being encouraged to pursue homosexual relationships. They're being taught that it's perfectly fine. It's a great way to express your love. And maybe, just maybe, you're different and dare to be different. Teens, kids, don't dare to be different in this. And you say, this sounds like an angry message, Pastor Dan. Well, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, because this isn't an all bad news message. This is a message that has hope. The great tragedy of what's happening in Canada and our country and around the world is the way that homosexuality and transgenderism is being treated and marketed is that it is minimizing the power of the gospel. Do you understand that? That's the great tragedy here. It is absolutely, and they're trying really hard to neuter the gospel, and here's the thing, you will never neuter the gospel. Trying to make the gospel of no effect. My Bible says that the, the gospel is the power of God to salvation, and it is true, genuine, life-changing conversion therapy that we all need. Look at verse 11 of chapter 6. So after this horrible list in verses 9 and 10, there's some real hope in verse 11, and such were some of you. If you are the child of God today, that is your testimony in one sentence, and such were some of you. He goes on to say, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. I once was. <laughs> I once was blind, but now I see. I once was a drunk, but now I'm the child of God. I once was a thief, but now I'm the child of God. I even was once a homosexual, but now I'm the child of God. And to say, and to say that you are born this way, that is really a true statement because all of us are born with sin. You do realize that, don't you? We're all born with sin in our hearts. We're all born with the capacity to do the unthinkable. We all need converted. We all need conversion therapy of the right kind. You see, what verse 11 tells me is this, that God loves individuals 
who are sexually immoral, no matter how sexually immoral they are, and he rescues them. Doesn't he? And what these laws are doing is they are trying to prohibit us from preaching the hope of the gospel. And I, for one, will not submit because the gospel is more powerful than any man's law. You see, the government get, doesn't get to define sexuality and marriage. God already did. Are you clear on that? The government, they may think they have, and that's one of the problems with government. I don't care whatever form of government. One of the big problems with government is government is always thinking they're more powerful than they really are. Right? Government doesn't get to define what sexuality is. Government get to, doesn't get to define what marriage is. Only God did, and he did it one time because he did it right. And so this morning, I stand with my brother pastors in Canada who are standing in their pulpits right now preaching in the face of government oppression. I stand with them. They are brave men, and we need to pray for them. We need to pray for those congregations. We need to pray that they will stand true to the gospel, because if they don't stand true on this point, they're not going to stand on the rest of it. We stand with them on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We stand with them in preaching the whole counsel of God. We stand with them on calling sinful action, sinful action. Because if we don't call sin, sin, then there's no hope for the gospel. If homosexuality isn't a sin, if, if swindling isn't a sin, if being a thief isn't a sin, then I don't need a savior, right? And we stand on the hope that we too were trapped in our own sins, will, willfully rebelling against a holy God, but, but hopefully your testimony is the same of mine. I've been washed, I've been sanctified, I've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's who I once was. We need to speak truthfully about this. We need to speak truthfully about this. And it's going to get harder and harder to speak truthfully about this. But, but honestly, we have got to start calling sin what it is. It's sin. But we can't just stop there. And that's the, that's the thing that's happened in a lot of churches that have the same kind of names and descriptions as our church. Men get up in front and rant about the sin of homosexuality, but they offer no hope for it. Just that it's wrong and that, and that God hates it and, and that God's going to judge it and all these things. But, but give us some hope. And the hope is that Christ died for the homosexual just like he died for, for the rebel Dan Scarberry. You see, speaking truthfully is calling it sin, but speaking truthfully is also offering the hope that is found in the gospel. But we need to be prepared, church. What are we going to do when Ohio passes that law? And you say, oh, Ohio will never pass that law. <laughs> you never thought you were going to get locked down two years ago either, did you? What are we going to do when that comes to our, to our country? What are we going to do when that comes to our state, when it, comes, when it comes right here to our jurisdiction? What are we going to do? I hope you're going to be with me, and every Sunday we're going to open our doors and we're going to offer hope in the gospel, right? 
Because it's easy to say today that we stand with our Canadian brothers because we're not facing what they face. Let's hope that there's some churches left one day that the Canadian brothers can stand with here in the U.S. And by God's grace, we're going to do that on the gospel. Father, we beg you for the pastors and churches in Canada today who are right now facing the unthinkable Men who are standing in their pulpits even today, probably wrapping up messages if they're in, in the Eastern time zone, and who, who don't even know what they're going to face when they're done preaching. We pray that you would give them courage that's rooted in the, in the truth and the confidence that comes in the scriptures. Lord, I pray that we as a church would hold to the word of God, that we would hold to the gospel. Lord, that we would be praying and encouraging righteousness at every turn. But Lord, as we think about it, and we think about how wicked this world is, we can't help but pray to you, Maranatha, even so, Lord, come quickly. Lord, we live in a wicked society. I pray for our kids that you would protect them. Colleges and schools are trying to indoctrinate them into this wickedness. Protect them, I pray. I pray for our parents. I pray for our fathers and our mothers. Help them to wisely lead their children, I pray, in these dark days. But then, Lord, I pray that you would just give us hope. Our hope is not found in government. <laughs> government has let us down too many times for us to put our hope there. Lord, our hope is not in, in, in getting the right person in the right position or the right law passed. Our hope is firmly placed in Jesus Christ. And may we be reminded of that as we go forward. In Christ's name, amen.